welcome back to The Bloody Pit. I am Rod Barnett, and joining me once again is John Hudson. Yay! Your cheering section is here. Yeah, it's me. (laughs) (laughs) How have you been doing? Doing all right. Doing all right. No, uh, No big complaints. Good, good, good. Uh, have you been doing anything more interesting than me, which is I've been exploring the world of uh, 1970s Hanna-Barbera cartoons and suffering because of it? Well, I have not been doing that. I did just last night finish, uh, it's been probably about a six-week rewatch of the entire series of NYPD Blue. Oh, okay. Which was one of my favorite series, and um, I haven't watched it since it aired. And so I just finally got, uh, it was one of those things I've been meaning to do, and finally thought, I'm going to do it. And it was very rewarding, so. How were you, how were you re-watching it? Were you streaming it, or? Uh, I had a lot of them on DVD, uh-huh. but, which looked kind of crummy. And then about at, around season four, I realized that it's on Hulu. Ah. So I, that made it look a little better. And the later DVDs start to look better. There was a period there where I wasn't able to watch Hulu, but Shout Factory did them later, so that the DVDs start to look better, but... Good show. It's like a character actor's paradise. You see... Yeah, most of those episodic shows, especially in the 90s and early 2000s, it's like there were still enough of those great character actors that we love from the, the 60s, 70s, and 80s who are around doing you know doing t- episodic television. Mm-hmm. And so they just... So many of them show... It's like, if you look like... People like Michael York were showing up on things like, you know, SVU, Criminal Intent. Oh, yeah. You know, all this kind of stuff. It's weird. And shows like that and NYPD Blue, it's perfect for that because yeah. every episode you've got, we've got suspects and witnesses and we've got to right. get new people in every week. So, um, and they're a just lot of, churning through actors oh, all yeah. the time. Yeah. And a lot of unknown faces before they were famous popped up. My favorite one is there is a, um, seen at the beginning of an episode where they found this body that's been burned up in a dump and the detectives say oh there's some homeless guys let's go see if any of them saw anything so this one guy's like i didn't see nothing and then another guy comes up and gives them some information and when that guy had his line i looked and said wait a minute he didn't get a pre-episode thing but in the end credits he's listed as man in sleeping bag and it's paul giamatti man in sleeping bag. Yeah, there you go. Oh, my God. Well, he has risen in the world. He has. He has. And I think one of my favorite discoveries is there is an episode fairly early on, maybe season three or four, written by um, David Simon, who created The Wire. Yeah. And Giancarlo Esposito, who plays Gus on Breaking Bad, plays a character who is a guy who makes his living robbing drug dealers right. and taking their drugs and money. Huh. Sounds a lot like a character from The Wire that we all love uh, named Omar. A lot Omar. like Omar. It's like, what's a proto-Omar? <laughs> so that was just really cool to see, you know. So a ton of little moments like that. You want to know the weird thing that I now know about that actor you just brought up? His last name, he pronounces it Esposito. Because his his family background has Italian in it, and that's where the I think that's where the name originates. Had, there's this great interview that they did with him on Fresh Air, or was it? No, no, no. It may have been Mark, may have been uh, WTF Mark Maron's mm-hmm. show. I can't remember now. Where they go through and you know you find out. I, I didn't know what his background was, but he likes he like grew up uh, in a family you know where he was kind of destined to be in the arts in one way or another, and that's how his last name's pronounced because it's not what you think it is. <laughs> 
it's I think it's of Italian extraction. And he he pronounced it and like the host was going, okay, so it's it's not esposito because it looks like yeah yeah. And he's like, no, it's esposito. He says I don't I, I don't get upset about it, but it's you know because it's it so obviously looks like the other name. He says, but no, that's how it's pronounced. It doesn't matter. Well, that's pretty great. I know it's just one of those things where you're just like it's like when I learned how to say. Uh, uh, Chuatel Ejiofor's name. It's just mm-hmm. like, it, it, as soon as you hear him pronounce it, it's like, oh, okay, it, it just sticks in your head forever. <laughs> it's like, okay. Well, I, I understand, have to, sir. That you've changed the way I look at the world. It just, that name shouldn't, it doesn't look like that's how it should be pronounced from an English speaker's point of view. <laughs> it's just one of those, how did that happen again? Okay, it's a name. It doesn't matter. It's, a, it's, a, it's someone's name, so they pronounce it however they're going to pronounce it. The other really cool thing that's happened since the uh, last time we met is Laura and I went out to Arizona. Our youngest son, Jared, graduated from ASU. Uh And um, so we went out to, even though they didn't have an actual graduation ceremony, we went out and spent a week with him anyway, because it's a big deal. You know, he's earned it. So we went out and spent a week with him, and um, I did some record store shopping. And I found the original pressing for the soundtrack of Martin, still in the shrink wrap, and what sold it to me, that's cool on its own, but it... On the shrink, it's got one of those old stickers that says, Give the gift of music. <laughs> and I told oh, wow. Laura, I said, well, that that's sold right there. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I could just see my grand, my parents when I was a kid. Well, he likes music. Well, let's give him this as a gift. <laughs> and there's John Amplis with blood dripping down his face. Holding <laughs> <laughs> oh, like a syringe. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. See, that was a nice find. Well, um, once again, I have... Uh, done what may have been a foolish thing and I allowed you to pick the movie now see you always say that (laughs) but I think this proves that I've got excellent taste in every respect I want to disagree with you because you're you but then again this movie is hard boiled from 1992 so it's really difficult to argue that this is uh, anything other than uh, an out of the park home run so I like to think so so, hard-boiled, what, what made you want to do hard-boiled as opposed to, and I, this is just me throwing out the most obvious thing, why this instead of another John Woo, you know, Gangsters and Cops film? Well, this is, it's one of those things where I wouldn't say this is technically his best film. Okay. But it's easily the most fun. Um, and when, when you say best film, I mean, the, his films are so different. You know, something like Bullet in the Head is a great movie, but it is not much fun to watch. No, I mean, it's it, it, Bullet in the Head is a truly fantastic movie, but man, 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 it's a it's it's a it's a downer in a lot of ways. Yeah, it is, and the Killer's great, but Hard Boiled is just such a a roller coaster ride, and it's pretty much always going down. <laughs> <laughs> At full speed, you know, it just there's there aren't any many slow spots where the roller coaster goes up. It's just nonstop. Well, I mean, the thing is, uh, a lot of people, you know, you look around, you start thinking about John Woo's Hong Kong films from the '80s and '90s, and people do tend to refer to this as his masterpiece. And I would agree with a lot of people's estimations of this film, except that I honestly do kind of prefer the killer. Mm-hmm. Because to me, the killer's kind of it's it, it's just, it's more linear and more more pure. It doesn't feel too, it doesn't feel too big, and sometimes hard boiled feels a little too long to me. Not that I'm ever bored watching it, really, because it's absolutely fascinating. But the killer just I don't know. Let, let's get let's get into this aspect of it. One of the things about this movie 
that points to the influences that John Woo was kind of trying to shove into this movie is that he names uh, the undercover cop who's playing at being a gangster, Alan. And that is a reference to uh, Alain Delon, the Mm -hmm. French actor who was the star of the classic French crime film Le Samurai. And if you've never seen that movie, folks, by the way, highly recommended. Go see it. It's absolutely brilliant. As a matter of fact, just any movie with Alan Delon in it is probably a good bet. Just go ahead and watch it. Rod actually had some good advice there. I usually <laughs> I usually don't listen to a word he says, but that that's pretty good advice. <laughs> but very very clearly, the character that uh, is being played by Tony Long is based on that character from Le Samurai, and. The thing about uh, that influence and that being something that's kind of pushing a story in a certain way is the killer really feels like that. The killer really feels as if it's kind of a uh, almost an unofficial sequel to something like *Le Samurai*. Mm-hmm. The a lot of the a lot of the a lot of a lot of similar tone, uh, at least in the beginning, as it. As as is true with most John Woo action films, they tend to to start very carefully and slowly start to spiral and spiral and spiral and spiral and spiral and become bigger and more propulsive, I guess you would say, as far as the storytelling is concerned as they go along. And it's certainly true of the killer, and boy, is it true of Hard Boiled. I mean, it's it's very it's it's difficult to have gotten much larger than they could get with the end of this film. So yeah, oh yeah, it's incredible. But the. Uh, the, the joys of this this movie, I think it's it's part of a great subgenre that doesn't get talked about a lot anymore, which is kind of strange when you think about it, especially when you consider how big a deal uh, in the late 80s, all the way through the whole 90s, that this whole little subgenre was. It was re- it's referred to as the, the heroic bloodshed subgenre of Hong Kong action films. And uh, John Woo was a big part of it, uh, Ringo Lam, and a few other directors as well, where these directors were... Shifting the kinds of action films that were being made in Hong Kong from uh, kind of chop socky period pieces. Don't get me wrong, quite a few of them <laughs> were in those latter stages when these directors were coming along and wanting to do bigger, more interesting things instead of the by rote, kind of by the book, very obvious story that's been done a hundred thousand times. Some of those got really elaborate and really, really interesting. I'm, I'm a big fan of those movies stretching all the way back into the 60s. There's some fun stuff to, to, to watch there. There's a lot of really fun movies. But they were trying to shift things into contemporary times and therefore kind of move it into modern-day cops, gangsters, trying to kind of reflect the world around them instead of looking to the, looking to the, uh, the past to tell stories like this. And the heroic bloodshed subgenre... A lot of good movies there, and when you start naming off the best of them, you'll notice that a lot of the a lot of those films were John Woo movies. Oh yeah, Bullet in the Head, Better Tomorrow One and Two, The Killer, Killer. Hard Boiled. Uh, I don't think I put Once a Thief in there, but it's and it, it doesn't even really kind of fit. Yeah, it's kind precisely. of an outlier. Yeah, it's an outlier in a way. Stuff. It's it's a fun movie, but it's not right. It's not the same. And in fact, that what you said a little earlier is one of the reasons why I picked this movie because when. Um, you and I, as old people, remember <laughs> back in the 90s, early 2000s, when these movies were just all the rage among oh, yeah, yeah. cult film people. And they've kind of faded into the background a little bit. They really and, have. and it's hard to believe that you know you have to talk up hard-boiled and point people to it. To me, this seems like I know. you don't know about this movie, but 
maybe somebody out there hasn't seen it um, or you know so if we can get one person to watch which our would movie. be half of our listening audience really but, <laughs> but if we can get one person to go see this movie just check it out check it's it out we've done our job it's well worth your time let's oh yeah let's let's talk about well okay what what, what would be your favorite of the, is this your favorite of the of the woo heroic uh, bloodshed films it is it is. I just love this movie. It is just so much fun. Like I say, for me, it would be the killer, and I have a whole lot of affection for uh, a better tomorrow, especially the mm-hmm. first one. Oh yeah, and both of those are they're great. right behind. Yeah, that I mean, it's really it's 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 really kind of hard to it's really kind of hard to to separate them into like, well, I like this one a little bit better than that one, and that one a little bit better than this one. Yeah, I think it's because Hard Boiled has so many just jaw dropper yeah moments. Did I just see that? And, and then before you had time to register what you just saw, something else happens that's the same way. And what's amazing is I've probably watched Hard Boiled over the decades. I've probably watched, well, <laughs> I've watched it on probably almost almost every format that's been yep. available to watch it on. V- uh, bootleg VHS, Laserdisc. Remember the Criterion Laserdisc of this movie? Oh, yeah. That? I've still got mine. And, oh, um, my God. Where it folds out with yeah. the crane. Uh-huh. And um, and I you know think back, I spent... You know, I guess a hundred, hundred twenty-five dollars, hundred twenty-five nineteen nineties money. That's a lot of money. That was a shit ton of money. And you kids today complain about the price of some box set with the complete films of of somebody, a genius yeah. like Andy Milligan. <laughs> you know, and say that's too much. Why are they charging that much for all of the Friday the Thirteenth films? It's like, well. How many movies is that? Yeah, so you kids, you just don't know. Back when, I, back in my day, we paid one hundred and fifty dollars for one movie, and we liked it. <laughs> we liked it. You sack some shit. <laughs> <sighs> we are old, aren't we? Yeah, we are. Yeah, God damn, we're old. Anyway, <laughs> back to the subject. Of oh, just as a side road, somewhere in my favorite, my list of favorite uh heroic bloodshed films from this period is Ringo Lamb's completely insane full contact. Full contact. I knew that's where you were going. <laughs> full contact because I am right there with you. Oh my you. God, that movie. That I, don't get me wrong. I love City on Fire too. Mm-hmm. Ringo Lamb did a lot of great stuff. But yeah, full but, contact is just insane. It's <laughs> batshit crazy and it's an it's it's amazing. And of course it's you know anything with Chai Fa. Anyway, let's talk about what makes this movie so much fun? One, it's not so much the story. <laughs> yeah, the this story, is a movie where, as Joe Bob Briggs would describe this perfectly, there's not a lot of plot getting in the way of the story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the, the story honestly could be laid out in roughly three sentences. Yeah. Uh, undercover cop posing as a gangster trying to uh, upset uh, one particular gangster's scheme as a gun runner. Mm-hmm. Other cop who doesn't know at the beginning of the story that the undercover cop is a cop starts by screwing up what the undercover cop is doing and then joins forces with him. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a Marvel team up. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Or, Mar- or Marvel two in one. Or- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Plus explosions. <laughs> lots and lots of gunfire and explosions. But the amazing thing about this movie is well, first of all, let's get this out of the way. Uh, I do. I didn't. I did not know this until just a few years ago, and I can't re- remember why I learned it at the time. But um, they didn't. They didn't start this movie with the story that we end up with. When they started filming this, they the script. The scriptwriter had uh, had died before he finished the script. 
but they had to start they had to start making the movie. And the movie starts with an incredible sequence, a, 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 a failed a failed attempt at uh, arresting some gun runners in a tea house that goes horribly, horribly wrong and ends up with uh, lots of civilians and uh, more than a few cops dead. Mm-hmm. That wasn't even in the script. Yeah, they uh, they John Woo found out that this tea house was about to shut down. Uh-huh. So they just thought, well, we don't know where the movie's going to go, but I'll bet we can put this in there somewhere. <laughs> So they just went in there and blew the shit out of blew the shit out of the entire place, and it's it's an amazing sequence, and, and it's hard to imagine that anybody wouldn't have thought that this was just yeah this is how you start your movie because it introduces yeah, it perfect. introduces your it introduces Chalian Fat's character Tequila immediately and gives you a sense of what kind of person he is through the action through how he mm-hmm. handles himself in the fight, and. Uh, Kind of pushes. I mean, it introduces the gun running aspect of things, and it put it immediately pushes the idea of this this cop already being uh, in a position where he's ready to do whatever it takes to stop these criminals, and and it establishes it through lots and lots of incredible violence. Yeah, and that opening sequence, I um actually showed it to uh, Laura last night. Uh-huh. as I was watching it one last time before the podcast, because I knew she wouldn't want to watch two hours of this. But <laughs> I said, just just watch the opening sequence so you'll kind of get an idea of what we're talking about. And she's not one for... She's a woman. You know, this, this, isn't, this isn't really the kind of movie that she would immediately say, oh, yeah, I want to watch thousands of people get shot out of the same gun. Beth, <laughs> loved, Beth loved it. Well... We both found odd women. <laughs> well, this is true. Yes. Laura likes a lot of odd things. So she likes me. That's what my dad would That's always the say. There's something thing. wrong with her. Yeah. She likes you. Exactly. <laughs> but anyway, she watched the opening sequence and was like, wow, that that was pretty cool. And she said, yeah. like, I can totally see why you like this. But then, you know, it was late enough for her to go on to bed from there. But uh-huh. even somebody who would not have much interest in gun battles in a movie could see what was going on, could see the greatness of the thing because... That opening battle sets the scene for, in a John Woo movie, especially in this one, nobody ever just gets shot. No. There's stuff in every inch of the frame, and you could watch this thing a dozen times, and you're not going to see everything, because in, in a lot of movies, one of these shots would be the set piece. And instead, you'll have this incredible visual, and then here's another incredible visual, and here's another one, just bam, bam, bam. Well, and also stylist, it, stylistically, he's doing some very interesting things with slow motion. Oh yeah, and so I mean, one of the one of my favorite things is uh, there are sequences later in the movie where um, he's not cutting to a different shot to go to slow motion. He's going to slow motion within the within the same shot, within the same no edits shot. He's staying with his actors as they go down a hall, and then something happens, and, he, and he'll go to slow motion at that moment to slow down so that you can see clearly what yeah. happens. And then as soon as the gun, the, as the, that moment of gunfire is over, it goes back to regular speed, and it's still the same shot. And it's, uh, it's the same kind of thing that um, Sam Peckinpah was using uh, slow motion for in his action sequences, and you know all the way back to the '60s when he started using that kind of thing to to cross cut between regular speed and slow motion to emphasize certain aspects of whatever hellish mm-hmm. action and violence was going on in front of in front of your eyes, 
And Wu understands that implicitly, especially by this point in time. By the early 90s, he had done this so well for so long that he understood how to employ slow motion to not just draw your attention, but to emphasize the emotional impact of the thing that is happening in front of you. But knowing that if he doesn't, if he doesn't slow it down right then, you might miss what he's trying to emphasize emotionally, not the action. You're still going to be able to see the action because of the way he's choosing to frame his shots. But he wants to make sure that you get a sense of what the characters are thinking while they're doing what they're doing. And that is one of the things about Wu's action sequences. Hell, almost all of his action movies, really, that heralds a great filmmaker because he is attempting to tell you character beats. He's attempting to get across the intrinsic nature of the characters in front of you through action more than words. There are some good scenes in this movie where these characters talk to each other, but sometimes they're talking to each other in the midst of a battle scene, in the midst of being in a hellish situation where they're they're basically just taking time to duck behind something and reload weapons. Mm-hmm. And the dialogue at those points are, are helping to emphasize what the, how these characters are relating to each other, but it is intrinsically the way they're handling the violence that's going on around them that's telling you what kind of people they are. And it's weird to note that as effortlessly as it seems that John Woo could do this, it takes a lot of work to understand how to accomplish that on screen. And you have to have the right actors. And in this movie, boy, let's talk about... I was originally just going to talk about the, the trio of actors that I think are the probably the ones that most people would walk away from the film thinking of as kind of the, the stars. Mm-hmm. But the more I think about the movie, it's like, actually there's more like five actors, maybe six, that once the movie's done, you're like, wow, you can't really get those people out of your head. First and foremost, of course, Chow Yun-Fat, international superstar, incredible career for decades now. Um, became a superstar because of starring in you know multiple John Woo films starting in the 80s. He's amazing here. He's the cop. In the past, in past John Woo films, he'd been a gangster, an but assassin. still the good guy. <laughs> but still kind of a good guy because he has a sense of honor. In this movie, he's a cop. Kind of a dirty, hairy-ish kind of cop to a degree, kind I would of. say. <laughs> I'd say very much. Uh, uh, except yeah. instead of just carrying one three fifty seven Magnum. <laughs> Well, in the in and then we have uh, Tony Lung. Uh, 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 is it Lung or Lung? Uh, I've heard it kind of pronounced both ways. I think I don't know. Lung would get it probably. Anyway, uh, uh, playing uh, the character we we know primarily as Alan, who's the undercover uh, cop, who for the most part of the movie, Chiang Fat's character <clears throat> thinks is a an actual gangster. And those are those are your two central characters. But there's a third character who is the main kind of villain played by legendary Hong Kong actor Anthony Wong, who plays just a truly slimy, <laughs> unrepentant villain in this. Oh, he's, he's such a slime. And the thing is, I've seen Anthony Wong play just the nasty... I've seen him play cannibals. Yep. I've, seen him, I've seen him play <laughs> the nastiest, most horrible dregs of humanity. And he's always so good at it. And, and, and in this, one of the things I noticed about this is how beautiful Chow Yun-Fat and Tony Lung look throughout the film. Oh, they yeah. Look, they're they such great. a great team on this on the screen. But they, they, yeah. they look so good. Mm-hmm. And and Anthony Wong looks like 
He it looks like he just got it look like it's like they didn't put any makeup on him at all to make him look pale and 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 uh, kind of I don't know monstrous in a weird way mm-hmm. monstrous in that his, the way he looks is just very reality based as opposed to kind of the, the shining the shining beauty of these two guys and he's just and it's just I, I I'm sure it's a choice to make him look like the scumbag that he is because when he when he's sweating he's kind of his, his, his skin tone is kind of greasy at times where you're just like Ugh, i think he needs to take a shower or they kind of give him the uh, the joe spinell makeover <laughs> yeah in a way <laughs> but so 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 i thought okay those are your okay so really there's your there's your three actors yeah and those are three of the best actors in hong kong during this period oh, yeah, too definitely. I mean, bar none you got i mean you got a real murderer's row already but then I honestly, I absolutely love the uh, the actor who plays uh, 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 Tequila's boss, mm-hmm. who he has a lot of freaking arguments with. Uh, is, it, is it Philip? Is it Philip Chan? I believe so. I did not write his name down, and I meant to. But yes, but and he, he was an actual. I mean, the yeah, he job, was an actual ex-cop. He was the the job he did in the film is what was his job. Yeah. So and he brought just a. Actually, some a little bit of realism to it, I thought, and, and and he's great. He's great in it because those scenes where he, the two of them are butting heads, they have they have they have real fire to them. Mm-hmm. They really they really come off well. I'm like, okay, so that's so you're talking so you're still talking four out four actors there that you really want to talk about, and it's like, well, there's at least one more though, which is a character who wasn't even written into the freaking script. Yep, <laughs> it's a character that they decided to create while they were making the movie. He was is a, 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 a guy who was a stuntman and was working as a stunt as a stuntman and a stunt coordinator on the film, and they were just like, "Let's make a character for him to play in the movie yeah, as well." Because they didn't think that Anthony Wong was physically threatening enough, right? And I think they made the right call because, well, I mean, obviously they made the right call. Oh, yeah, Mad Dog is such a great character, but Anthony Wong is even more chilling because for most of the film, he's letting his his guys do it. Yes. I think he would lose some of his mystique if he were out there, you know, lobbing grenades. And, and of course, um, uh, the actor's name that we're talking about is Philip Kwok. Yes. Is his name. And um, the best way to compare him, to think of him in this film, because he was the stunt coordinator and they decided we're going to put you in the movie, is if this were Dawn of the Dead, he would be Tom Savini. He was like <laughs> the guy coming up with this, with all, some of the stunt gags. Yeah, and, yeah. Doing a lot, especially of some stunts. of the motorcycle stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it's amazing to think that he was just almost an afterthought because he steals every frame that he's in, and he's in the and he plays such an interesting character because by the end of the film you you start to see him as the 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 the, the very long the like last hour of the movie takes place inside a inside a hospital where um, the the uh, Anthony Wong's group has been stashing in the the basement their stash of illegal weaponry. And there comes a point where that the Mad Dog character has expressed uh, some doubt as to whether or not whether or not they should be doing what they're doing because it's putting innocent people in danger. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of the last thing you're expecting this guy to say at that point because he's he's not had any real dialogue up to that point. He's just kind of been like a true badass henchman who's, you know, after, after a gun, gun battle in a warehouse is literally lighting a cigarette off of a burning car. I know that's so awesome. (laughs) So, so to see that character then, then show later on that there, there's a point at which he is across the room from one of our main characters 
and there are innocent people. There's some nurses and a couple of patients on the floor in between them, and he intentionally stops, and the two of them, the cop and he, level their guns, place them on the ground, and let those people leave. And it's an unexpected thing. And it's and, and when you when you see that stuff and how it it's it develops over like two or three scenes in the last hour of the movie, it's bizarre because you have to realize they're making this up on the fly as they're making the film. This isn't mm-hmm. in a script, and it adds immeasurably to what one of the central thesis of the film is, which is not just that sometimes it's hard to know who the good 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 guys and the bad guys are. But sometimes it's hard to know where even the good guys and the bad guys draw the line. And that's a moment where both a quote-unquote bad guy and good guy are drawing the line in the same place. Mm-hmm. The exact same place. And that moment really does, it, it doesn't come out of nowhere. I mean, up yeah. until that hospital, anytime you've seen Mad Dog in action, he's been mowing down other gangsters. Yeah. And, so, and, and a little bit before that scene, he even said, like, we don't have to kill all these. We don't have to kill these men. Yeah, yeah. They, these are... Why don't we let the patients go? They're not. They're not part of this. And of course, Anthony Wong is. You know, he doesn't care. He's Anthony Wong. He's insane. <laughs> He'll do what he pleases. I'm gonna kill whoever I feel like. Is what it boils down to. Yep. Yeah. Just phenomenal. Plot synopsis here that we'll mm-hmm. use, we can we can use to kind of better guide this rambling conversation we're having about this movie, um, and also kind of serve as a jumping off point. You said a minute ago something about the uh, the original script. Yeah, um, originally, and I don't know a lot of details, but the original germ of the idea for this film was that Tony Long was going to play a psychopath who's murdering babies by poisoning baby food. Right. Now that, and, that that I knew that that got jettisoned pretty quickly. Yeah, because they they started fishing around with that idea, and distributors were like, no, <laughs> no, that's nobody wants to see that. I don't. I don't think we want to do that. But of course, what survives is you know people saving shit tons of an entire nursery full of babies in a hospital. So. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that that survived because that seems like every scene in this film is For great. Me. Uh, well, I do know that screenwriter Barry Wong uh, was brought—he brought in to write a new story about Tony Long's character being an undercover police officer. But after writing the initial part of the script, Wong went on a vacation outside Hong Kong, where he died, leaving the script unfinished. And that's where they were suddenly like, "Oh, well, you know, what do we do now?" So they knew they were going to be making up stuff without bringing another screenwriter. They're just going to have to make some stuff up to get this thing done, and. The 
the, the desire that this was going to be, everybody knew going in that this was going to be John Woo's kind of goodbye to Hong Kong filmmaking because he'd gotten a lot of offers to go to Hollywood and start working in the States. So the desire to get this done kind of pushed everything forward in a lot of ways. The I'm really glad that the last movie he made in Hong Kong before going to Hollywood did not involve uh, you know poisoning babies. That yeah. would have that would have been a really odd send off. But hey, if he still wants to try try to do a story like that now, I'm I'm, all, I'm game. Go ahead and make it. I'd, I'd watch it. He's he's back in Hong Kong now. Do yeah. it now. I don't care. But. We'll jump in with this plot synopsis and uh, just stop me if you've got some point to make along the way because I know I'm going to interrupt myself a number of times. You got it. The movie starts with uh, the tea house sequence. In a tea house in Hong Kong, Royal Hong Kong Police Inspectors Tequila Yoon and Benny Mac attempt to arrest a group of gun smugglers while they're making a deal. After an ambush from a rival gang, a fierce gun battle breaks out. The gangsters are defeated, but several police officers are badly wounded and Benny is killed. And, of course, this was shot in a real tea house. Yep. And that the birds in the cages was a real tradition, which yeah. they don't do anymore because of the avian flu. Ah, so, I had not thought of that, but yeah. you're right. So that, that is a glimpse into life that doesn't exist anymore. Oh, and it also is a natural enough thing for, for Wu to work in one of his favorite visual oh, yeah. tropes, which is slow-motion shots of birds flying while bullets are slinging in every direction. So, yes. And you didn't even have to work real hard to shoehorn it in there. No, no, no. There's some, there's some later movies where, you know, suddenly having a dub flying in slow motion across the sequences is kind of a non sequitur, but here it works, yes. It made yes. perfect sense. Well, as revenge, Tequila executes the gangster who killed Benny rather than arrest him, uh, much to the chagrin of his superintendent, Pang. Uh, tequila is then ordered off the case for his misdeed. Uh, now, that whole sequence where he finally gets the guy who shot during this entire sequence, the final the final shot that that this that super cop Chow Yun Fat pulls off uh, is it's an incredibly well done sequence. But it it takes place in the kitchen back of this tea house, and he ends up with flour all over his face, and then pulls the trigger on this guy, splashing blood across his his ghostly white face. Yeah, it's per and, and it's, perfection. It, it's an incredible image because it's this this moment of. Uh, the, the, the white the white flower on the face and the blood splashed across it it's just it's, it's it's an incredible image that sticks with you forever and once again he then at that point he's kept a freaking toothpick in his mouth during the entire battle and he kills this guy and then spits the toothpick in his face and it's um, it's all you need to know that's all, this whole action <laughs> sequence this, this this tells you everything you need to know about this guy and apparently this sequence um, took seven days to film, and you yeah. can believe it looking at it. There's so much going on. Well, meanwhile, Alan, an assassin under the employee of triad boss Uncle Hoy, murders one of his subordinates who had double-crossed their clan for a rival syndicate led by upstart Johnny Wong. Wong, who is looking to... Well, we should say that, that, that this assassination, this murder of this guy, takes place in uh, the public library. Mm-hmm. And it's a, an interesting scene. Uh, Wong... Uh, Johnny Wong, who is uh, looking to usurp the old triad bosses through his control of the illicit arms trade, is impressed by Alan's skill and attempts to recruit him. Alan reluctantly accepts his offer, and Wong brings Alan to a raid on Hoy's warehouse, where many of Hoy's men are killed. 
Now that really downplays that scene. Well, it, it, it does say Hoy is eventually cornered and allows Alan to kill him in exchange for the safety of his men. That's a really good emotional sequence. It where is. Uncle Hoy, it's, it's clear Alan has real affection for Uncle Hoy, who is yes. this old school triad who, who does his best to do right by his men and who uh, has a sense of honor that Wong clearly does not have. This young gun, Johnny Wong, played by Anthony Wong, is a... He's an animal. I mean, he's, re, he's really an animal. And Uncle Hoy is kind of that representation of the, let's be honest, fairly mythical idea of the, the gentleman gangster, the man mm-hmm. who is a criminal, but has a code of ethics that he will stick to, even if it costs him money. And Anthony Wong represents the version of those men who have absolutely no ethics beyond gaining everything they want as quickly as possible. And this sequence is probably the best example in the film of one of the... Tony Wong is such a great actor, but there are so many scenes where he tells like a paragraph's worth of information just on his face. Yes, he's exceptional in the sequence. It really is. And just by any standard of acting... He is so good where you can see in his face like he's trying to hide how he really feels about having to yeah. kill Mr. Hoy and yet not give it away in front of Johnny Wong and yeah. the conflict that's going through his mind and the emotions. It's just amazing. He's well, so I, good. I, the, the best acting from him in the entire movie is when he has killed Uncle Hoy mm-hmm. and walks away. Yes, I totally agree. And he's got to smile as he faces Wong as he's walking away. But just as as soon as he's past him, there's this look that crosses his face. And I want to say that it it actually goes to slow motion for a moment. I can't, but I can't remember now. I wish I'd written that down. But it's if it's not going to slow motion, it feels like it anyway. (laughs) Where you watch him struggling to to not kind of break and not. Have, you know, have a real flood of horrible emotions cross his face. And it's just, it's exceptionally well done. And there's a part of me who, who would love, to, who would just love to know from anybody who made that scene work, uh, how many, how many tries did he get at that? How many times mm-hmm. did he get, get a shot at making that, that sequence work? Because his, Tony Lung's use of his eyes throughout this movie to give you a lot of detail quickly, silently, about what's going through his head is exceptional. Yeah. Really, really good stuff. Well, uh, after Alan shoots Uncle Hoy, and he then just flips out and he kills the rest of his men, too. And it, that's, it's just that explosion of anger mm-hmm. at what's happened. And then Tequila, who has been warned off the case and told that he needs to leave all this shit alone, swings in from out of hiding and just starts attacking everybody anyway. <laughs> in, yeah. in, in a sequence that I have to admit, I love this whole sequence, but the logic of why he's doing what he's doing at that point completely eludes me. Yeah, but who cares? He looks so cool. <laughs> he just looks so cool coming in through the ceiling <laughs> Just mowing people, mowing down. people down, <laughs> rappelling down from the roof, and just <laughs> shooting everything inside. It's like, dude, you're alone. What are you doing? You were here. You had a front row seat to watch 
bad guys killing bad guys. You should you should really just kind of start making notes and then go home and make a report. Well, and see, that actually brings me to one of the questions I had, especially after watching NYPD Blue, okay. is who does Chow's paperwork? <laughs> a team of men. <laughs> who goes back to the station house and writes up what happens when weapons were discharged? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Well, there's a... There are a ton of... In reality, <laughs> there's a there's a team. Much, yeah. There's a team of men who are who are like literally following along with video cameras and going, how are we going to explain this? Oh, they'd still be writing it up. <laughs> they'd be writing it up 30 years later going, yeah. okay, okay. I okay. don't know. That one so, guy. <laughs> so he, we, he clearly could have stopped here, but he reloaded. Yeah. Okay, how do we justify this? This moment <laughs> when he's reloading the machine gun... <laughs> To continue going after people who are cowering behind cars. How do we how do we justify this? Oh, better question. How do we justify him taking a fucking assault shotgun to a motorcycle gas tank? <laughs> Good question. Huh? 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 Mm, well, do we, do we use blue or black ink for this? Shut up and just write. I don't know. I'm I'm just going to use disappearing ink and get out of here. <laughs> get the hell out of here. Well. Uh, uh, Pang, that would be Tequila's boss, his cop cop boss, confirms Tequila that Alan is an undercover cop. And of course, the movie has kind of led us in the direction of thinking that there must be some kind of undercover cop sending messages carefully to Pang because uh, there are all these white roses that keep showing up in the office of uh, uh, Tequila's er, uh, kind of estranged girlfriend who's also who also works for the cops. Uh, so there are all these roses that keep showing up to her office, and there's always, uh, in the card, there's an English phrase that's always a, a phrase from a, a popular song. And it is the notes of the song, of the, of the, the portion of the song that's on the card, that gives, the, the, that gives Pang a code that allows him to get the message that's being sent. Mm -hmm. Which is one of the uh, really cool little moments in the film is the first one where... Uh, his boss calls him in and asks Chow, he's like, why, this guy's, he, he misses you or something. And she says, no, no, <laughs> sing it to me. So then he goes, are you somewhere feeling lonely or is someone loving you? Which is, hello by Lionel Richie. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's this thing, well, I, there, there's, a, there's that thing that can sometimes freak some people out when they watch a film like this, which is they don't seem to understand how uh, in Hong Kong in this period, English and English and Cantonese people would switch back and forth in between the two rather effortlessly, and there's a lot of that that goes on in this movie. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, and and well, and there's a point at which uh, Pang is is apparently just so fucking angry with Tequila as he's screaming at him that there's an entire sentence he screams mm -hmm. at him in English. He's <laughs> just like. Oh, he must be pissed. He's speaking in another language. <laughs> he's, he's, it's like it's like phase shifting into Latin for a priest. He's really pissed off at you now. Well, if you had told Tequila to leave these gangsters alone, and instead of that, he went in and killed about seventeen hundred of them, yes. <laughs> <laughs> complete with grenades and an assault shotgun. It's like eh, you didn't do what I told you, you to really do. Listen, did you? He didn't. We weren't listening. You weren't listening at all. So this is when he confirms Tequila that Alan is an undercover cop. So Tequila tracks Alan down on uh, on his sailboat to try to make sense of the entire situation. <laughs> but while they're talking, while they're talking on the sailboat and trying to come to an agreement on how they're going to move forward, 
the, the two of them are ambushed by the remains of uh, Uncle Hoy's gang. Uh, Alan gets shot. Uh, Tequila and Alan manage to kill their attackers before Wong arrives, allowing Alan to keep his cover. Wong realizes that one of his, his lieutenants, uh, a, a guy named Foxy, is a police informant. Now, Foxy has been passing. We've seen him passing information to uh, Chiang Fat's character. Yeah, Foxy actually was a triple agent. Kind of a triple agent, you know? yeah. because he was in Mr. Hoy's gang and Johnny Wong's gang and, and the police. For the cops. Yeah, working for the cops. Uh, well, Foxy is beaten at the docks by Wong's henchman, uh, Mad Dog, in front of Alan and Wong. Alan then shoots Foxy in the chest after putting a cigarette lighter in his chest pocket so that he can shoot him in the chest but hit the cigarette lighter and then toss him in the water and it looked like he really was trying to kill him but mm-hmm. he knows that at least that he'll survive this and possibly get some information to someone else. Um, I, th- I thought it was I thought it was like there are all these little grace moments because earlier we see that it's Pang who gives Alan the, uh, the cigarette lighter as a birthday gift. Grace note of... I won't say gentlemanly goodwill, but of kind of guys bonding over odd little things, which is, you know, it's, it's, it's clear that Pang can't meet Alan often because he's an undercover cop. And so the fact that he chose to meet him this one time because it was his birthday mm-hmm. and to give him a gift that, uh, you know, he could, just, he could just hand to him and that, you know, would be a gift that anybody could you know would give to someone else but that would actually mean something to him uh, it's 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 one of those it's one of those neat little moments it's it's very much a uh, a, a guy a guy you know a friendly guy thing that perfectly fits within the uh, the structure of how the characters acknowledge each other and respect each other and it's just it's just a like i say it's just another little detail that at first when you see when you see him give him the give him the lighter you're like oh that's that's kind of cool. They're establishing that there's goodwill between this boss and his undercover underling. And then, of course, it's like, you know, 15 minutes later, it's like, oh, no, it's also something that he can use to to mm-hmm. to save this poor sucker's life for a little while, at least. So, And one thing that sort of is the opposite side of that from the tequila side is that he gets to have some quiet conversations with Mr. Wu, who runs the jazz bar. <laughs> yes, played by someone who's played familiar. by Mr. Wu, John, John Wu, Wu. Yes. Um, and those are those scenes were put in the movie just to kind of humanize Tequila because originally there was going to be more with him and Teresa Moe's character, uh-huh. and they edited some of that out. And Chow was like, "Well, this just I just seem like a killing machine." <laughs> I seem like he a still monster, does, yeah. but yeah. but they put in some quieter moments so he can actually have some real conversations and get some moments of reflection. And those jazz bar sequences were actually shot at a place called the Jazz Bar. They just pretty much just went in and filmed it as it was. Yeah. So they didn't, I don't think they even changed the decorations. Like the poster for John Hammond on the wall was for a real John Hammond gig that was coming up. So, <laughs> I love the musical choices for this film in the mm-hmm. first place. And I think that they establish the, the, the jazz kind of sound that they're going to use. Uh, right, you know, right at the beginning, they establish mm-hmm. that uh, kind of steel drum, uh, that steel drum as percussion kind of uh, upbeat tempo stuff and then the kind of uh, you know clarinet heavy jazz that that permeates other sequences where that the, the things that aren't that aren't action sequences mm-hmm. let's put it that way 
But what, what's the steel drum? What's the steel drums coming to play? It's like, oh shit, people about to get yeah, shot. Yeah, you know, there's there's about to be bombs blowing up. Yeah, things are things are about to get shot, blown up. So. Yeah, and the soundtrack while, while we're talking about it, is phenomenal in this movie. Yeah, it's just yeah. great. And um, funny story about that. And I brought my hard boiled. I'll hold it up for the camera. <laughs> Everybody, look. I brought my CD of the hard boiled soundtrack. I brought this over so Rod could get some music for the show from it. But I got this CD. Just to tell you how much the world has changed. Yeah. Um, I love the soundtrack, and I was able to read the credits and tell who did it. But I went to Tower Records and here in Nashville at the time, and they couldn't order it for me. Huh. This was before the internet, so you know, there's no chance of that. <laughs> yes, yes, it was. It was bi before internet. Before internet, and boy, those are some dark days. <laughs> um, so I, um, you know, just could not figure out how to get my hands on this thing so the world horror convention was coming to nashville oh and doug winter who used to write the audio watchdog column for video, well, video watchdog, watchdog was yeah. gonna be there so i asked him how can i get this thing and he said try kim's video in new york city so um i called information got the <laughs> phone number for kim's video once again before the internet yep you had to call, you dial zero and got an operator. An actual human being. <laughs> and they looked it up and I got Kim's video and called them and sure enough, they had it. So I was able to order it over the phone with a credit card and they sent it to me. And, um, it, which is a lot, you think now it's tough that you might have to wait three days to get it from Amazon. Oh, what a hard, <laughs> what a hardship. <laughs> How horrid. So I, it was, but it was worth it you know, to get, to get this thing. And, um, you had to wait for a convention. Talk to a, a professional who writes about this stuff. Get his get his opinion on where to find it. Yep. Call a fucking information number. Get the right number. Call the place. Steal someone's credit card. Did That's, I leave that part out? You. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, wow. So you've had this for twenty five years. Yeah, before? at least. Yeah. yeah. Since though those conventions were in the early nineties. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Um, and circling back to NYPD Blue, there's a lot of establishing shots in every episode, just little quick glimpses of the streets in New yeah. York here and there. And in one of them, there's a quick shot of Kim's video. So, <laughs> ah, that's cool. <laughs> Never been there, but you've purchased it, merchandise from I bought merchandise from I think it's long gone now. But. Yeah, I think so. I remember, I remember kind of legendary tales of that place. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's gone. After Foxy gets shot, but not killed, he finds Tequila at the jazz bar and informs him that Wong's armory is hidden in a vault beneath a nearby hospital. 
as Tequila takes Foxy to that hospital, because <laughs> he's clever. <laughs> Wong discovers that Foxy is alive and sends Alan to kill him, then discreetly sends a mad, mad dog to watch Alan. At the hospital, Alan confronts Tequila, demanding to know the whereabouts of the vault. While the two are distracted, Foxy is killed by Mad Dog. Uh, all this stuff going on in the hospital—it's pretty—it's uh, pretty—it's brilliantly staged because at this point, it's still a—it's still a—it's still a, it's still a uh, stalking kind mm-hmm. of thing because not, not, it, this hasn't broken out into the massive ultra violence that it's going to become, and so it's like. It's, this is when you should have been feeling the 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 roller coaster car slowly going uphill. Yeah, this is slowly getting higher and higher. The altitude's getting a little higher. Okay, yeah, yeah, and that's what all of this stuff is. Alan and Tequila discover a hidden passage in the hospital leading to Wong's vault, which is near the near the morgue, mm-hmm. which is which is logical. Makes sense. <laughs> I, lo- I love the dialogue where they're talking about, well, if we get killed here, we're, we're yeah. already in the morgue. So. Uh, <laughs> as more police and gangsters arrive, oh, well, well, in, in, this, in, the, in this, uh, this vault, they get into a gunfight with Mad Dog, which is a great little scene in of itself. And then as more police and gangsters arrive, Wong has several patients taken hostage. Mad Dog then requests the hostages be released. This is where we first get the, you know, this is where we get like that second little inkling of Mad Dog ha- having... Uh, Let's just say be more in tune with the old way of doing things than the crazed madman mm-hmm. way of doing things. Um, Wong refuses to do that, but after and after fighting their way to the main lobby, Alan and Tequila manage to save the hostages. Pang evacuates the lobby while Officer Teresa Chang goes to the maternity ward to evacuate the babies. As Alan and Tequila continue fighting through the hospital, now understand we're taught we're in like every word I'm saying. You should hear like fifty gunshots. That's, that's yeah. roughly the amount of gunfire going and about on. Seventy-two squibs. And yes, exactly. As Alan and Tequila continue fighting through the hospital, the duo eventually confront Mad Dog once again. While Tequila leaves to assist Chang with the babies, Alan and Mad Dog get into a tense shootout before finding themselves in a standoff amidst several patients and staff. This is the scene I was alluding to earlier. Mm-hmm. They offer the group safe passage, but Wong shoots at the group. In a bid to kill Alan, angered Mad Dog turns on Wong but finds himself out of ammo. Wong then kills Mad Dog while Alan escapes. Now, before we go further, we have to go back and discuss one of the most amazing scenes ever filmed. And that's that long take. Oh, yes, yes, yes. It's about two and a half minutes with about... Two and a half minutes worth of John Woo gun battle going on, <laughs> and, it, and it does that amazing thing, which is uh, I, I don't I, it, I don't know if it was a real elevator or if they just reset everything while they're quote unquote on the elevator. They reset everything. Okay, good, good. Which is incredible to think about because they're only in that elevator maybe thirty seconds, then the door is open, and then there's they're fresh, on a quote unquote another floor. Yeah, and I guess they go off. You know what you see out right outside the elevator is all clear, and there hasn't been hasn't been burned to the ground yet. <laughs> yes, and then they go down a hallway, which is still relatively unscathed, but it's unbelievable. And um, I think it was in Bay Logan's commentary where he said that the man who had the most pressure on him is the last beat in this is a stuntman who gets shot and goes through a glass window, uh-huh. and he had to be the most tense person in the scene. <laughs> 
Because he did not want to mess up. He screws this up, and they have to redo an entire three-minute segment of film. If they got to him and he screwed it up. So I don't know how many takes they did for that thing, but it is incredible. Yeah, it's amazing. It's 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 one of those uh, sequences that if you realize what's happening while you're watching it the first time, you will just be even more impressed. Mm-hmm. But on second viewing is when you will really start to realize, oh, there are no edits in this. Yeah, there aren't any. There's no edits at all. There's no, like, going past a blackened doorway yeah, where they nothing. can cut. It's all brightly lit. Yep, yep. There, the, yeah, it, it's 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 a brilliant sequence, and it's it's so well achieved that if if you felt unkindly towards John Woo, you might you might be you might be pissed off that he was so flamboyant that he tried something so audacious, and you you'd, you'd feel like you 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 bastard, you're just showing off at this point. Mm-hmm. This is this is a show offs. Kind of techno, techno, technically virtuosic thing. This is, this is the kind of thing you watch a, a skilled guitar player do that that uh, he would he knew that nobody else could really replicate unless they were watching him do it. And it's like, yeah, but we love John Woo, and so we're just <laughs> cheering every second of it. This is beautiful. It's it's that it's that perfect guitar solo. It's that it's that perfect uh, it's that perfect song that has that, that, that does everything exactly right. That sounds absolutely perfect and then won't leave your ear after you hear mm-hmm. it. It is a work of art. That's just that one segment alone. If you if you didn't enjoy anything else, just showing someone that segment, just go now. Marvel at the filmmaking ability. Yeah, and it's not just the technical, we had all the squibs and all the fire pots in the right place. During this same sequence, Alan accidentally shoots a policeman, Yeah, realizes it, and is really really upset about it. Tequila has to sort of talk him down and tell him how he had also done the same thing. Earlier in the tea house sequence. Earlier in the tea house sequence, and says, like, look, get your head on, or we're not going to make, don't worry about that right now. And... And this is another one where there's like the little bits like you were talking about earlier where it slows down yeah. at moments to get the emotional heft of what's going on. Uh-huh. All in one, just it's just a tour de force. It's incredible. And it's this segment, uh, this this segment, not the entire long last, like not the last 45 minutes, which is kind of an incredible thing in and of itself, but it's segments like this that... Have me nodding along when someone claims that this is John Woo's masterpiece, even though I prefer the killer. Mm-hmm. I know where they're coming from. I get what they're saying because it's all of the built-up experience over time that's allowing Woo to put something this amazing on screen and continuing to tell his story, continuing to deep, deep, uh, dive into the characters and their relationships while the action continues, all in a single shot, and it's it's the kind of thing that you have to have a lot of experience and just be really in tune with the people that you're working with to make something like this even try to come off well. And he does it effort. It, it, it feels effortless, and you know it wasn't, and that's what the that's what's yeah. even more impressive. So, yeah, it's 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 uh, like I say. This isn't my favorite Wu film, but every time somebody calls it his masterpiece, I really kind of just have to nod and go, I'm not going to argue with you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to say my favorite is actually The Killer, although this may be a better film. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, Tequila manages to meet up with Alan, and the two are confronted by Wong, who sets off bombs within the building. Alan refuses to escape, 
choosing to pursue Wong while Tequila jumps out of the hospital with wire cables as it explodes. Uh, he's also got the last baby. He's holding the last baby that didn't get out. The the cops, the uh, the, the SWAT team, had gotten the rest of the babies out through a window. Uh, and this, this is the last one that got left behind, so he, he pushes cotton into its ears so that it won't be deafened forever. <laughs> and, of course, there's the great moment where, in the middle of all this, Child's pants get set on fire. Yeah. He's got... He's holding a baby. He's got this cable in his hand, so he can't. He can't do friend. anything. He can't do anything, and the baby pisses and puts out <laughs> puts out the fire. He calls him a little calls him a little, little piss, piss pot. pot. <laughs> <laughs> Wong, Wong drags Alan uh, outside at gunpoint as a hostage and has Tequila humiliate himself in front of all the cops standing there. With this distraction, Alan manages, Alan manages to grab Wong's pistol and shoot himself through the stomach, giving Tequila the opportunity to shoot Wong dead. Uh, that's the moment at which you just figure, okay, so Alan, the undercover cop, has essentially sacrificed himself. Mm-hmm. That's how you think this story's going to end. But amazingly enough, they did have the, the sheer balls to, to, to give this movie a pretty happy ending, which I thought was... Was was pretty surprising to be honest because I fully expected this to be dead undercover cop. You know, isn't it sad? Let's. Well, I mean, Wu's films always had such great happy endings before. <laughs> this. God, flashback to Bullet in the Head yeah. <laughs> or the Killer, <laughs> or the Killer. Yeah, hey, this is the most there. depressing thing I've ever seen. <laughs> it's like, oh my god. So maybe you felt like. <laughs> But maybe sometimes his characters deserve a happy ending. <laughs> well, these so, definitely did. Yeah. So, of course, at the end of the film, in case you haven't figured it out, I don't know how we could spoil this film considering it's mostly action. So, come on. I mean, Chow Yun-Fat himself described this movie as 70% action, 30% story. <laughs> about right. It's about right. It's, <laughs> he's not wrong. Uh, to protect Alan from the triads, Pang and Tequila destroy Alan's personnel file and declare him dead allowing him to leave Hong Kong to start a new life. And one great moment as the film ends, earlier we find out that Alan hates making origami cranes. Yes. So he makes one every time he has to kill anybody. Right. And the last shot in the film is Alan standing on his yacht, throwing all his origami cranes into the sea. Starting a new life. Starting a new life. Yeah. Just great. And one last little trivia moment, the sequence where Chow runs out of the out of the hospital as the flames are going behind him, like right behind oh, him. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. As the, as the hospital fucking yeah. blows up, yeah. Um, they shot that once, and John Woo just didn't think it had enough impact. So oh, he said, let's do it again. And Woo set off the explosions. Oh, no. And Chow did not realize <laughs> how that, close that, he was going to be. That look of terror that's on Giant Fat's face was real. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> he comes out, and he's, like, swearing at Woo and going crazy. And he turns around, and his hair is singed. There's smoke coming off his hair. And then he says, did you get the shot? And Woo's like, yeah, okay, good. <laughs> We're good. <laughs> I wonder if that's why they've not worked together again. It makes you wonder. He, he was originally going to be in um, Red Cliffs and then yeah. pulled out because he, I don't think he had enough. He didn't think he had enough prep time or something. Oh, okay. Uh, but it's nobody really knows for sure. But they haven't worked together again since. So it's a, it's a shame. It makes you think there must Cliff, have been some yeah. kind of a falling out. Well, I I would hope not, but it is possible. I mean, you know, lots of things happen in the years, you know, and they, you know. 
for for years for years together they they could have worked together when they were working in uh, when they were both working in uh, Hollywood, but uh, mm-hmm. that that never came together. Which I don't, I don't know if somebody you know honestly wanted to try that while they were in uh, working together and while they were working at the same time in Hollywood. But uh, yeah, it's a shame because he because Wu did return to Hong Kong and made uh, Red Cliff. And I did, but I did not know that uh, Chai and Fat was originally attached to it. That's interesting. That's mm-hmm. and, it, and that is a shame. It would have been great to have the two of them work together again. Yeah, and of course you got you got Tony Long in there. So you know, if you can't get Chow, you can't uh, yeah. get Tony. But but yeah, it, I would love to see them together again. It may happen one day, but well, both of them are getting a little long in the tooth. Yeah, yeah, it's it's hard to say. I don't think Wu has had a film out since uh, 2017. I yeah, think. I don't think so, and I can't track down a copy of that one. Yeah, I haven't seen that one either. Um, it's you. You would think anything that Wu does, somebody in America would pick up and and release, but I don't think that one's available in America. Yeah, Manhunt, twenty seventeen. I, I, I'd like to see it, but without a without a, a, a domestic release, it's kind of hard to know. Yeah. Oh well, I'll see it eventually. Oh, uh, one day, one, one day, because eventually it will either break down and buy an import, or it'll turn up. Somebody will really release it. Why isn't it? Why isn't it something that we can just stream so we can see it now? I know it's I know. four years old. I know. I don't want to have to get Doug Winter on the phone and ask him how to get a copy. <laughs> <laughs> who do I call now, Doug? Well now, well, now with the internet, we actually know who to call. It's not yeah. that big a deal. Yeah, it's so easy now. Kids today, <laughs> kids today, and their their easy push button way of getting things. It's like they're in the future. <laughs> These <laughs> bastards. And the future does affect us all. <laughs> It's, that's where we're all going to spend the rest of our lives. <laughs> well, Mr. Hudson, um, I think we both agree that this is a great movie. I think it's more interesting to think back on how we first saw these movies, because you're right. It is weird that there's an entire generation now of people who absolutely love things like the John Wick movies who would really enjoy something like this oh, yeah. as well, but are just really unaware of it. And I think a big part of that is that it's just not um, it's not part of the public consciousness in the same way it was when we were first getting into cult movies. And it starts to make me kind of think that, in a way, maybe what we were a part of at the time was this cult movie phenomenon that was born and bred out of the bootleg markets. This is how you were seeing these things. This is mm-hmm. how you, you would hear about it through word of mouth or through, uh, you know, cult movie magazines and things of that nature. This is all, like we say, before the internet. And I wonder if this is a case where there is such ability now to see anything and everything that there are things that get lost between the cracks. And in a weird way, as energetic and as audience-pleasing and as much of a roller coaster ride as movies like John Woo's heroic bloodshed movies are, they've gotten lost between the cracks. Now that probably won't stay that way. There will be a wave where I think these movies will come back into the public consciousness mm-hmm. in a way, in the movie-going public consciousness. But I think what will happen is that one or two of them will show up on a streaming service, and that will cause a kind of renaissance, a kind of reawakening of, of awareness of these movies. But God only knows when that will happen. Yeah. I mean, who, who really knows? In the very fraction, we're getting into a, to a point where the, the, the market for streaming services is so fractured that who knows what service would pick these movies up because uh, if you're seeking out a service that does Hong Kong movies, you're probably already aware of these movies. 
But what we're talking about is a larger public consciousness where something like this would show up as, a, as an option on something like Netflix or Prime or Hulu or something, and people would be curious enough to go, oh, I don't, know really, I don't really know what that is, but it says it's an action movie, so let's press play and see what happens. Yeah, and, but if it goes on to its own cult channel... Yeah. It's not going. You're not going to get any new converts that way, right? You're not. You're not going to get that broader awareness of it that we're kind of talking about. The that these films probably should already have. And I think, um, which actually, we'll go back just a bit to how. And I may have discovered these things the same way you did, um, which is on the Jonathan Ross Incredibly Strange Film Show. Do you remember that that A and E ran? I do remember it, and I do remember. I mean, that's how I learned about Troy Hark. Yeah. And a lot of other things. And the episode they did on him. Yeah. And they also did one on Jackie Chan, yep. which I knew who Jackie Chan was, but you couldn't see very many of his films at that point. But seeing all those clips from that just got me head over heels for that guy. Right. But the Troy Hark episode also showed a couple of clips from Better Tomorrow, which he produced. Oh, that's right. And so that, that but that whole episode not only did it have his films but had stuff like Mr. Vampire and right. and other films and that just was the hook in my mouth and reeling me in. <laughs> yeah. So after that I started to read everything that I could find and Tower um, Records had a zine that came out not long after this called Asian Eye. It's published yeah, by I guy. That. Yeah. And um that was I think it, I don't know if it was before Asian Trash Cinema but I saw it before I saw an issue of Asian Trash Cinema and it was sort of your basic if you if you saw it now, you'd say, "Well, every this is this guy's just hitting all the high notes here. It's not digging deep at all." But nobody but knew time, this stuff the, at yeah. the time. And I'm reading about these films, like, "Oh my gosh, I want to see that! I want to see that!" And not long after that's when I started going to Asian groceries and renting movies. And then I discovered um, Video Wasteland, which is the guys from Cinema Wasteland. Yeah, yeah. used to rent VHS tapes to the mail, and from there I was off to the races. Between that and the Asian groceries. <laughs> See, I never had I never had the Asian grocery experience. Everything was I think I know I, I know I ran across the killer first, and I know I ran across it on something like Cinemax in the late eighties. Mm-hmm. And after that, it was just like, well, how do you know? Good lord, how do I find more of this? And it took forever for me to be able to pick up bootlegs of Bullet in the Head. And uh, yeah, that's the toughest one. That and Once yeah. a Thief are the toughest ones to yeah. get. Yeah. But Bullet in the Head was one of the was one of the first Wu films that I bought as a bootleg for Video Search in Miami in the early nineties, mm-hmm. where it was one of those things where uh, you, you read about it, read about it, and all these different zines, and then you finally are able to see it, and you realize, oh, I need more of these, and you start searching for you know Better Tomorrow, What's a Thief, and all these other movies, and it's just like around that time is when Hard Boiled hit. And you could hear about it, but we still couldn't see it. Yeah, and that was the same experience, I think, that I had, where that one, we sort of got in real time. That We weren't going back and discovering it after the fact. Yeah, You'd yeah, be like, yeah. oh my gosh, this we guy were, just... We were already aware of the... He's of made the a new yeah. movie. Yeah. And it's it's like, oh, well, we can't see it yet. And it was like yeah. months before we could see it. And it's like, I, I, it was... Uh, I don't even remember how I ended up seeing it for the first time. I'm not for sure either. It was probably Video Wasteland. Maybe, I don't know. I know it came out on VHS... As well, here. may have been a rental for me too. So I, I, I can't. It's been a long time. Ah, well, well, folks, we love this movie. If you've not, if you've not watched any John Woo movies, dive in head first. You're going to enjoy yourself. And don't get me wrong, he made some good movies over here in Hollywood too. He made some not good ones too. Don't, mm-hmm. Let's let's not be let's not be let's be fair. Well, let's let's do this real quickly. Of his American films, what are your favorites? Face Off for sure. That's Face the Off one. number one. And I, and for me, number two. 
And it's a close number two. It's hard to target. target. Yep. <laughs> Those two films I agree. are astonishingly good. Uh, I think his Mission Impossible movie is an embarrassment. And I've read some people saying that, and Wu made the best of the Mission Impossible movies. And I'm like, no, no, he didn't. That no, thing is a mess. So. That thing is a mess. And it's the first movie that he made as a director, uh, a director for hire here in Hollywood when I realized, oh, wow, they're really not letting him do what he should be doing. <laughs> this is really, there's only like two segments of that movie that feel like John Woo. The rest of it is definitely somebody under the thumb of the producer star. <laughs> That's what that is. Uh, anyway, but yeah, um, I need to go back and revisit Broken Arrow. Some people are saying that uh, it's better than my memory of it is. I remember it just being kind of okay. That's kind of where I am, and I, ha- I don't know I've seen it since, um, gosh, I, I think I had it I had it on Laserdisc. Because I was able to find one cheaper than the Criterion. Yeah, I've actually action. never owned that one. I saw it in the theater and thought, well, it's pretty good, but not great. I'm pretty sure I've got it on Blu-ray now just because I'm... you got everything. <laughs> I've, I've got everything. It's a film, so I own it. But I think I picked it up. You know, it's probably like one of those six ninety nine, you know, releases that I found on sale uh-huh. or used somewhere, I think. I'm not for sure if I own that now. <laughs> I talk uh, to the people. <laughs> well, 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 just out of curiosity, did you ever see Paycheck? No, I never did. And you know, that's always been one of my little blind spots that I know I need to go back and see. I need to go back and rewatch it because I remember kind of enjoying it at the time because it's an adaptation of a Philip K. Dick story. And I like the premise, but it, I don't know that it's necessarily a, a the kind of premise that was well matched to John Woo. Yeah, Let's put it that way. And I've I've heard not so good things about yeah, it. So, yeah. oh, and I do own Broken Arrow on Blu-ray. So. <laughs> of course you do. I told you you did. You didn't have to look it up. Well, I just wanted to be sure. I didn't want to lie does to it, the people. Does it exist? Yes, you probably own it. Well, now these people, <laughs> I would wonder what the listeners. What do they? What do they? What do they think of you? They think that there's some miraculous world in which you exist and are like happily married and also a geek of the level that you're a geek. Well, that is a miraculous world. That is. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a miracle that this exists at all. It's true. I, um, I, not many days go by, but I don't thank my wife for putting up with me. It's uh, kind of astonishing, really. You got that right, my friend. <laughs> Mr. Hudson, I want to thank you for, um, uh, Convincing me to talk about hard hard boiled because I haven't wa- I had not watched it I, I had not pulled my Blu-ray out to watch it in years. Oh really? Okay, I, yeah. I watch this one fairly regularly. Um, it's easily the one of his films that I watch the most, just because it's so much fun. Um, and you, honestly, you don't have to think a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't. I, I'll let's be blunt. You can't think a lot. No, you it's can't. It's seventy percent action. Yeah, if, if you think much, you'll miss something. <laughs> you'll miss everything probably. Just but um. Yeah, I'll, I'll, it had been maybe just a couple years since I watched it, but it's always a pleasure to to pull that uh, Blu-ray out and watch it again. And I, I keep hoping the Dragon Dynasty Blu-ray. It's it's okay. It's that's what I've got. Yeah. It's it's not bad, but I keep hoping that Criterion will pick it back up again and do that. Yeah, I, I I don't know if that'll happen. I it could. I, I'd love an upgrade. I'd love uh, what would be great is most of the people who made the movie are still alive. Yeah, we could have new interviews with them. Having a you know having a look back, uh, we're coming up on the thirtieth anniversary. That's right. That'd be perfect. And I just heard today or yesterday that Quentin Tarantino is a is making some run ones about starting his own Blu-ray company oh, to, to release good, his favorite yeah. films, and um, this would certainly qualify. 
Well, uh, what would be great is uh, he could release uh, City on Fire and do a commentary track where he goes, well, here's where I stole this. Yeah. Because, I mean, he's, he's, he's pretty straightforward about it these days. So uh, He ought to be. <laughs> Very clear. All right. Uh, this is where, uh, you know, right. Uh, all right. I got it from this scene. All right. And <laughs> I said, I'm going to take this fucking scene. All right. And then I'm going to take this fucking scene. All right. <laughs> And on that point, <laughs> thank you once again for coming on the show. And uh, Lord only knows what the hell film you'll pick next for us. But actually, I think we already kind of know because I think the next time you and I record, we're going to try to sit down with uh, our buddy uh, Bobby Hazard again. Yeah, and do Grunt the Wrestling movie. No, not that film. I thought that's the one we talked about. We talked about American Rickshaw. Yeah, that's right. You have American Rickshaw, right? I do. Okay, because I, 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 I got to be honest. Our mutual buddy has just lost his mind over that movie. <laughs> have you talked to him about American Rickshaw? Briefly, yeah. I think, I think the night he watched it, he said, we have to podcast about this movie. Yeah. Oh, it's it's really good. I have no trouble going uh, on yeah. about American Rickshaw. So. <laughs> Once again, thank you, buddy. Hey, thank you. As always, I say it every time, but it's true. I, it's always a pleasure doing this. I appreciate you letting me be a part of it. All right, man. Talk to you soon. All right. See you later. Vampires. Werewolves. Zombies. Yes, these things are real. But fortunately for those of us who can afford him, so is Mark Temple. And he's good. Real good. He's a former FBI agent turned freelancer with the knowledge and skills to eliminate your monster problems. And his rates are negotiable. Monster Hunter for Hire, the first volume of the Supernatural Solutions, the Mark Temple Case Files, is now available in both ebook and paperback. Go to tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple to buy your copy of Derek M. Cook's latest book. Read about Mark Temple, the experienced professional now available to rid you of your supernatural, ghoulish, and monstrous pests. That's tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple. And don't worry, Mark Temple is discreet. Did you ever see a film at such a young age it left you traumatized with cinematic wounds? Ah, necrophilia. Ah, yeah. It's a dead issue, man. Don't don't push it. Cinema PsyOps is a weekly podcast documenting an ongoing experiment on the mind of an unwilling test subject. No one should have to watch this movie. Oh, no one should have to watch this. No one should have to watch this movie. Surprisingly, it's not a topic that a lot of people really want to tackle. I'm shocked, Prudes. I know, really. Right? It's the next sexual frontier that no one wants to explore. I am, in the most sincerest of senses, disappointed in you. It takes a powerful goddess like Connie, jam her arm down the monster's throat and kill it. Oh, I'm still tripping out over that. Even as a kid, I was like, I gotta find a girl like that. Every week, I, I get a new look of disappointment that I never thought I could get it's out of here. unimaginable. At 12 years old, you should not be watching this movie. Obviously. At 13, you should not be. 14, you shouldn't be. I'm not entirely sure even 17-year-olds should be watching this movie. Just because you're offended by something doesn't mean that you have the right to demand that it doesn't exist. Watching this film again, I had all of this like little nerd glee with everything Dude, that kept Little history up. doll yeah, popping up absolutely. at you. So I totally loved this film. Hey, I know why you you know, couldn't see that. It's because your brain's warped watching this shit at 12 years old. Yeah, this is this is a rough movie. I told you ahead of time when we were getting ready to do it that it was How did you watch movie. this shit at 12? Because physical wounds heal, cinematic ones don't. Listen to Cinema Psyops. And that's going to wrap up our episode on Hard Boiled. I want to thank, once again, John Hudson for making the suggestion to 
cover that particular film. I hadn't uh, hadn't revisited that movie in so long. Some of it felt like I was watching it for the first time. It's pretty fun, and uh, you know, it just zips by. It's such a such a fun film. It's such a, an entertaining ride. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you've not seen it, definitely, definitely check it out. And if you've never experienced the uh, other Hong Kong heroic bloodshed movies, boy, it's a it's a genre worth exploring. Well, just a lot. <laughs> an incredible amount of. Uh, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of uh, a lot of violence, and uh, sometimes it's uh, it's downbeat. Sometimes it can uh, it can work on your emotions and and make you feel make you feel like you've you've been unmanned. But these are the kinds of things that uh, I'm glad somebody else brings to the table to talk about because it's not something that would immediately occur to me to talk about. So, uh, yeah, yeah, a little Hong Kong violence this time around. Remember, if you've got any comments or suggestions about the show, the address to write to is thebloodypit at gmail.com. Troy and I will be back, I think, in the next episode to dive back into the universal horrors of the 1940s. And then I've got a few other little surprises along the way lined up as the, uh, the, as the summer progresses. Let's just say that. Ooh, man. It's getting warm out there, folks, at least here in the Northern Hemisphere. So everybody stay cool, and we will talk to you again next time here on The Bloody Pit. (laughs) 